0: So good to have everybody here. I'm going to be picking up with our next podcast installment, which is going to be chapter 16, which is titled by Tertullian, New Testament Passages Quoted. They attest the same truth of the son's visibility, contrasted with the father's invisibility. Now, just for context, again, those who may be new to the podcast or new to watching or listening to us on YouTube, Tertullian is giving a polemic Against what historians have called early modalists. Now we've done 15 other teaching sessions on uh, Tertullian against praxis, so of course we're not promoting Tertullian's view as doctrinally correct. But I think that if one is going to understand modalism or oneness or however you want to look at it, you need to understand what our detractors say. And from what I can tell, outside of Hippolytus, Hippolytus or Hippolytus, um, these one of the uh, earliest writers that were really anti-oneness in a lot of ways. So again, this chapter is chapter 16, New Testament passages quoted, and we're going to get started. And the first line of uh, Tertullian's polemic in this chapter is, if I fail in resolving this article of our faith by passages which may admit of dispute out of the Old Testament, I will take out of the New Testament a confirmation of our view that you may not straightway attribute to the father every possible relation and condition which I ascribe to the son. I notice how Tertullian is making this clear. Every possible attribute to the father, like he's making it clear. There are some attribute differences that can be realized between the father and the son, which. Is problematic, but of course, it goes beyond the scope of what we're looking to discuss today. He goes on to say, Behold, then, I find both in the Gospels and in the writings of the Apostles, a visible and an invisible God revealed to us under a manifest and personal distinction in the condition of both. There is a certain emphatic saying by John, now, notice this first area that I have highlighted here with gray and green. The reason that I'm doing this is because it is serving, as you will, um, a type of how can you say, uh, given the, the 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 primary thesis of this chapter uh, that he's going to be building his uh, argument against. And it's as we have seen in chapter 14 and 15 he is building an argument as to why praxis must be wrong about his belief in the Godhead because of the distinction of the visible and invisible. He goes on to quote a verse of scripture here, the first one where it says no man hath seen God at any time. And this is going to be the foundational argument to his argument, uh, which is going to be based on uh, the gospel of John, the first chapter, the 18th verse. And he says, meaning of course, at any previous time, but he has indeed taken away all question of time by saying that God has never been seen. The apostle confirms this statement for speaking of God, he says, whom no man have seen nor can see. And this is a quotation from first Timothy six and 16. Now notice in this context, when he's talking about God here, he's talking about the father. He's saying that no one has seen the father, And what is interesting that just like in much of the New Testament writings that when it refers to God, it's talking about the Father, uh, Christ, I believe it's talking about the Father incarnate, that he goes on to build this cantana or cantana of scriptures to really solidify his argument. Because the man indeed would die who should see him. This is how we know that no one has seen him. And of course, Tertullian is referencing Exodus 33, verse 20, Deuteronomy 5, verse 26, and Judges 13, verse 22. But the very same apostle testifies that they had both seen and handled Christ. Now, again, he's quoting 1 John 1 and 1. Now, notice he's building attention within his scriptural proofs to build the case that this must definitely be evidence of a distinction in the nature of God. Now, if Christ is himself, both the father and the son, how can he be both the visible and the invisible? Now notice this is the differences of attributes that he mentioned in the first part of the uh, chapter. Uh, And he's really formulating his premise here. If he is the same, then how can he be both visible and and, and invisible? Right. Right because it is Tertullian's understanding that the Father is unseen in the Old Testament. Now, for those of us who may be in our uh, very early stages of trying to study Middle Platonism, you understand that with the idea of Middle Platonism, which is characteristic of the apologists, or those uh, apologists who are in what church historians have called the age of the apologists, Middle Platonism had this idea that deity, there were certain things it wouldn't cross and become, you know, things like that. So, I, I to me, I wonder is Tertullian somewhat incorporating these ideas to build a sensible argument against early Christianity? I mean, early uh, modalism, which I believe was the early form of Christianity, uh, because he understands if they're going to build notoriety, that they have to be seen as sensible. And a modalist or oneness viewpoint in the Greek mindset is not sensible at all. Uh, and this is not going to work when you're trying to climb the social ladder. Now, if Christ is himself both the father and the son, how can he be both the visible and the invisible? And I notice I've highlighted that in red so you can see that. Now, this is going to get interesting. He goes on to say, in order, however, to reconcile this diversity between the visible and the invisible, will not someone on the other side argue that the two statements are quite correct? Now, he is somewhat trying to present what could have possibly been the most common response to this argument that is made in this time period. And again, we are assuming that he is giving an honest refutation of what they believe, you know, but it's likely that Tertullian did stretch some things. And and this is somewhat of his attempt to quote them. He says that he was visible indeed in the flesh, but was invisible before his appearance in the flesh so that he who was or has the, as the father was invisible before the flesh is the same as the son who was visible in the flesh. So he's saying their main argument is the reason that he was invisible was because he wasn't incarnate and that he only became incarnate uh, and attained a visible status. Now this, I would have to agree, this is a a, a very familiar viewpoint of uh, oneness Pentecostals, especially when you take scriptures into account like Hebrews 1 and 3, uh, which says, you know, let's just know that he is the radiance of his glory. He is the image uh, of, uh, I think it's a uh, Colossians uh, one and two. He is the image of the invisible God. This is very much in line with what one Pentecostals teach and believe. But this is the interesting part because he's about to go into some argumentation. That's really going to make it clear, even to a great extent, what he's trying to say that he was invisible indeed in the flesh but was invisible before his appearance in the flesh. Now you remember in some of the previous chapters, he made the very strong argument that there is no distinction in essence. But if we're talking about one being distinct because of visibility, I would have to argue that that is a nature difference unless you're saying that the only thing that makes him visible is the fact that he was incarnate. The truth of the matter is, is that for this argument to be consistent, he would have to have been totally invisible before and uh visible in the current state but he goes on to say so that he who uh excuse me he who asked the father was invisible before the flesh is the same as the son who was visible in the flesh if however he is the same who was invisible before the incarnation how comes it that he was actually seen in ancient times before coming in the flesh and by parity of reasoning If he is the same who was visible after coming in the flesh, how happens it that he is now declared to be invisible by the apostles? Look, he's he's really setting it up. How, I repeat, can all this be unless it be he is one who anciently was visible only in mystery and enigma, and because more clearly visible by his incarnation, even the word who was also made flesh? whilst he is another whom no man has seen at any time, being none else than the Father, even him to whom the word belongs. Let us, in short, examine who it is whom the apostles saw. That, says John, I notice he's going to pick up with another quotation that's going to be based on 1 John 1 and 1, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. Now notice he's, he's building this, this image that he is visible and tangible, but this is definitely speaking of the one who is incarnate. Now the word of life became flesh and was heard and was seen and was handled because he was flesh who before he came in the flesh was the word in the beginning, the father and not the father with the word. For although the word was God, yet was he with God because he is God of God and being joined to the father is with the father. And we have seen his glory and as the only begotten of the father. And at this verse, he is quoting first John 1 and 14. That is, of course, the glory of the son, even him who was visible and was glorified by the invisible father. And therefore, inasmuch as he had said that the word of God was God. In order that he may give no help to the presupposition of the adversary, which pretended that he had not seen the father himself. And in, in the order to draw a distinction between the invisible father and the visible son, he makes the additional assertion, as it were, no man have seen God at any time. And again, he's really quoting from 1 John a lot. In this instance, he just quoted from 1 John, the fourth chapter, the 12th verse, what God does, he means the word. But he has already said, him we have seen and heard, and our hands have handled the word of life. Well, I must again ask, what God does he mean? It is, of course, the Father whom was the word, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father and has himself declared him. He was both heard and seen, that he may not be supposed to be a phantom, was actually handled. Him, too, did Paul behold. But yet he saw not the Father. Now notice, notice this: Have I not, he says, seen Jesus Christ our Lord? He's he's really making this clear. Moreover, he expressly called Christ God, saying, "Of whom our fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, came who is over all, God blessed forever." He shows us also that the Son of God, which is the Word of God, is visible, because he who became flesh was called Christ. Of the Father, however, he says to Timothy, whom none among men hath seen, nor indeed can see, and he accumulates the description in still ampler terms, who only hath immortality and dwelleth in light, which no man can approach unto. It was of him too that he had said in the previous passage, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible to the only God, so that we might apply even the contrary qualities to the Son, mortality accessibility of whom the apostles testified that he died according to the scriptures and that he was seen by himself last of all. And by means of course of the light, which was accessible, although it was not without impairing his sight that he experienced that light. A like danger to which also befells Peter and John and James who confronted not the same light without risking the law, the uh, loss of their reason and mind. And if they who were unable to endure the glory of the Son had only seen the Father, they must have died then and there, for no man shall see God and live. And this is the major problem I have with the way that Tertullian frames a lot of this is because if we are saying they are exactly the same nature, why is it? Which I would argue that Tertullian is really more of an early subordinationist, if you really want to know my opinion. I don't think Tertullian is a co-equal Trinitarian. Because to say that there's something different within the son's nature that allows people to see him and not die and him be the exact same nature, you don't need any help to see that. That doesn't make sense. This being the case is evident that he was always seen from the beginning, who became visible in the end, and that he was not seen in the end, who had never, let me see, been visible from the beginning, and that accordingly there are two, the visible and the invisible. It was the son, therefore who was always seen and the son who always conversed with me. And now notice I have this highlighted because I'm really going to address this with, with Bible. And the son who has always worked by the authority and will of the father, because the son can do nothing of himself, but what he see the father do that is in his mind and thought. Now, this is the part that I have a lot of difficulty with. He goes on, for the father acts by mind and thought wise, the son who is in the father's mind and thought gives effect and form to what he sees. Thus, all things were made by the son and without him was not anything made. It's like he tries to go back at the end of all of his statements to kind of tie it up. But the text that I want to bring, let's see what the witness of the word of God says. I'm going to read out of the book of Hebrews the first chapter, the first verse, and I'm reading out of the New English Translation. After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Now let's look at this. It makes it very clear that the one who spoke to them in olden times was none else but the father himself. But Tertullian is alleging that this was the son. Uh, we have a problem because according to the scripture, the advent of the son speaking is the result of the last days. We can go to the book of Hosea, the 12th chapter verses nine through 10, that the Lord says that he's spoken to the prophets. Deuteronomy four and 12, talks about the vision uh, that when the Lord came down the mighty mountain and conversed with them. And he references that when he uh, charges the nation of Israel in this, in the second given of the law in the book of Deuteronomy, you see this in Jeremiah seven twenty four. where in the whole book, it's the father speaking uh, in the fifth chapter, verses 13 through 14, where's the father speaking. So we can already see from this instance that Tertullian has abandoned the witness of scripture to promulgate his worldview, but Hey, Please let somebody know we're having a great apostolic podcast. And as always, it is the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. The Lord bless you in Jesus.